Hello and welcome to Frontier of Infinity. I hope this episode finds all of you well. This is our first ancillary episode. It occurred to me while editing the previous episode, Dance with the Devil, in which we discussed the V-2 missile rather extensively, that some of you may have been wondering whether or not there was ever a V-1. The answer, as I'm sure you've been able to deduce by now, is yes. It was simultaneously very similar and very different from the V-2, and given that it's a fascinating machine all its own, I thought that it would be a fitting topic to cover in a bit more depth. So without any further ado, let's get underway. The V-1 was the first of the Nazi retaliation weapons. As the V-2 was the world's first ballistic missile, the V-1 was the world's first cruise missile. The idea for an explosive that could fly itself to a target had been floating around since the 1930s. And in 1935, an engineer named George Hans Madelung and his partner Paul Schmidt submitted a proposal for a jet-powered flying bomb to the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. But despite this design being quite advanced for the time, it was rejected. Around the same time, a man named Fritz Goslau was working on his own design for an unmanned aircraft that could be controlled remotely. He called this machine the FZG-43, and eventually worked up a prototype for it, though it didn't perform. Later, Schmidt and Goslau eventually fell in together, and began to explore the possibility of combining their ideas. The flying bomb could be married to the remote control idea in some intriguing ways. The two of them were eventually joined by a third aircraft designer named Robert Lusser, and together they roughed out the basic design for what would eventually emerge as the V-1. They submitted this plan to the Luftwaffe in the spring of 1942, and just a couple of months later, it was approved. Under Luftwaffe management, it was designated Project Feisler FI-103, and by December of 1942, the design had been realized and was ready for testing. The early designs had some trouble in initial trials, but nevertheless, they impressed the military. In May of 1943, the V-1 was given the green light for full production. The design of the V-1 was rather remarkable for the age. It was just over 8 meters long, or about 27 feet, and sported a pair of short wings about midway down its body, in addition to a pair of shorter horizontal stabilizers at the rear. The fuselage was a thin, tapering cylinder, which contained many highly advanced gadgets to deliver its warhead on target. The warhead in question weighed in at just shy of a full ton, similar to the V-2, and it also used amatol as the explosive. The warhead could be controlled by three separate fuses. One was an impact fuse designed to set off the explosive when it impacted the ground. The second worked on a delay, allowing the missile to burrow under the ground before detonating. The third was a timer fuse, which would blow the payload two hours after landing. The primary purpose for this third fuse was to prevent a downed V-1 from falling into enemy hands. The missile was propelled by an Argus AS-109-014 pulse jet engine, which was mounted at the rear of the missile over the fuselage. This engine was fairly simple. 
From the outside, it looks like a tapering tube with a grill inset at the front. Inside, fuel was forced into the combustion chamber by compressed air, which was contained in a tank inside the fuselage. The fuel was atomized before entry into the chamber, meaning that it was sprayed in as a fine mist. The fuel would mix with air which was forced in through the grill at the front of the engine, at which point a spark plug ignited the mixture, causing a contained explosion. The explosion triggered a mechanical system that snapped shutters behind the intake grill closed as the blast went off, thus forcing the explosion's energy and byproducts out the back of the engine to generate thrust. The shutters would then snap open again, and the process would repeat. Now, this explanation that I've just provided may make it sound as though producing any thrust from this engine must have taken a long time. This was not at all the case. The process I just described would repeat itself as many as 50 times per second. This rather interesting propulsion method also produced one of the most outwardly notable aspects of the V1, the growling noise that it made as it flew. The low grumble the V1 produced, somewhat like a motorcycle engine, led to one of its nicknames among the Allied forces, the Buzz Bomb. The pulse engine was just one facet of the missile, though. The machinery involved to guide and steer the V-1, I think, is much more impressive. The missile carried a compass at its nose, housed inside a wooden sphere to minimize magnetic interference. This compass was responsible for controlling azimuth, or, put simply, direction of the missile. Two gyroscopes also helped to keep the missile oriented properly, one controlled pitch, or how far up or down the nose was oriented, while the other controlled for yaw, or twisting along a vertical axis. Altitude was monitored by a barometric system, meaning that it measured the air pressure around the missile to determine how high up it was. These systems were all connected to a pneumatic control system. Deviations from the program flight path would create pressure differentials in this system, which would trigger corrective action in the missile's control surfaces. These corrective actions were powered via compressed air, which was stored in another spherical tank inside the fuselage. This compressed air could be used to drive pneumatic servos on the rudder as well as on the elevators, which were mounted to the horizontal stabilizers at the rear of the aircraft. These systems kept the V-1 on course, but just how did it manage to know when it was over its target or how to come down on top of it. That was done with a separate system that was no less ingenious in its design. On the aircraft's nose, there was a small wind vane shaped like a propeller, which would spin as it was pushed through the air. This vane would in turn, through mechanical linkages, keep track of how far the missile had traveled with an internal odometer, similar to the device that tracks how far your car has traveled except this odometer ran backwards. Instead of starting at zero and then counting up, it would be programmed before launch with the distance to the target. This would require factoring in not only the missile's average speed, but also the expected wind conditions to calculate how many revolutions the vane could be expected to make before reaching the target. As the missile flew, that mileage would count down towards zero. At around 60 kilometers from the target, or about 37 miles, the odometer would signal for the warhead to arm. 
Then, when it finally hit zero, a separate signal would lock the elevators into a downward position and enter the missile into a terminal dive. Blasting bolts inside the machine likewise locked off the rudder to prevent drift on the way down. Whatever was underneath the missile when it entered into this dive was in serious danger. However, accuracy was a problem, just as it was with the V-2. A V-1 could only be expected to land somewhere in the ballpark of 31 kilometers, roughly 19 miles, from its intended target. This number did improve with time, though, as by the end of the war, the missiles could be reliably expected to land within just 11 kilometers, or about 7 miles, of their intended target. V-1s made use of a rail to launch, constructed on an incline like a ramp, and aided by a steam catapult. This had to be done because the pulse jet engine could not start itself from a standstill. It had to be moving in order to force air into its combustion chamber. The steam catapult fixed this issue. It performed a similar role to the launch catapults on aircraft carriers, pulling the aircraft along before releasing it into the air, at which point the pulse jet could start and take over propulsion. The V-1 had an operational ceiling of about 10,000 feet, or 3,048 meters but most of them flew at only two to 3,000 feet, or about 600 to 900 meters. A V-1 fired from Calais in northern France, across the English Channel to London, would take about 15 minutes to arrive at its target. Most of the V-1 launch sites were built in the Pas de Calais region of France, which is on the eastern side of the narrowest point in the English Channel. Launching from this region meant that the V-1s would have less distance to cover in order to strike targets in Britain. The first V-1 to strike London fell in the early morning hours of June 13, 1944, just days after the Allied powers had stormed the beaches at Normandy. It struck Grove Road, and was followed by three more that same day. This strike was part of what the Germans called Operation Ice Bar, which had actually begun the previous night, though none of the first volley of V-1s launched actually made it across the channel. Following that first quartet, 144 V-1s struck Britain the following week, the majority of which, 73, hit London. They had an immediate psychological impact, which was augmented by the sinister growling noise they made on approach. Once again, the British homeland was under threat from the skies. Remember, this was after the British had suffered through the Blitz earlier in the war, when the Luftwaffe had attempted to subdue Britain with a sustained air campaign. But it didn't take long for the Allies to begin developing countermeasures to stop incoming V-1 assaults. They could be shot down by anti-aircraft weapons, but they were difficult to hit, being both small and very fast. Though a number of innovative new technologies made the Allied air defenses more effective against the V-1s, including the proximity fuse. This was a tiny radar mounted at the tip of an anti-air shell, which could detonate the shell once it detected that it was near to a target. This eliminated the need for direct hits, or for the use of temperamental timed fuses. A near miss could still detonate the shell, potentially bringing the V-1 down. Gun-laying radar also played a role which provided information that allowed for anti-air fire to be directed more accurately. Both of these technologies allowed gunners on the ground to intercept a decent proportion of the incoming V-1s. 
By late summer 1944, as many as 60% of inbound V-1s could be shot down. On one particularly productive day, 82% of incoming V-1s were blown out of the sky before reaching their targets. V-1s could also be shot down by fighter planes, though with varying success. There has even been talk of Allied pilots using their wingtips to nudge V-1s off course, though I can't be entirely sure if this ever happened. All of the evidence I've seen for it has been anecdotal. Barrage balloons could also be useful in shielding a city or a position. These were large balloons that were anchored to the ground by steel cables. Enough of these deployed in an area would create a veritable forest of iron filaments, which could shred a V-1 as it flew through. However, one of the most effective countermeasures against the V-1 menace was disinformation. Interested in determining how accurate their missiles were, the Luftwaffe inquired of their spies embedded in Britain for information regarding where they fell. But a good many of these spies had already been rooted out by counterintelligence operations, at which point they would be offered a simple choice, turn on the Nazi regime and serve the Allies as a double agent, or face execution for espionage. Most of them made the choice to save their own necks, and became fresh conduits by which the Allies could feed disinformation back to Berlin. This included disinformation regarding the accuracy of the V-1s. The double agents would report that the V-1s had a tendency to overshoot their targets. As such, the launchers across the channel would program the missiles to fly for a shorter time before dropping. As a result, many of those missiles fell short of their targets, which spared the most densely populated areas, like central London, from more damage. But these missiles would still land frequently on smaller towns and cities in the surrounding areas. All told, it's estimated that V-1s killed 5,475 people in Britain, more than the V-2s killed. The V-1s' reign of terror in Britain was short-lived, though. Fortunately, the Allied commanders in mainland Europe, who were rolling the Nazi war machine back toward Germany, took the threat of the V-1 seriously and prioritized strikes on V-1 launch facilities. By the end of September 1944, all of the launch sites in Pas de Calais were neutralized. However, this was not the end of the V-1's service. As the Germans were pushed out of France, Belgium, and Holland, their targets shifted to major continental cities that had fallen into Allied hands, most notably Antwerp and Brussels. These were important logistical hubs for the Allied armies, important for keeping the soldiers at the front supplied. But the V-1s were insufficient to reverse the Allied tide, and the final V-1 hit Antwerp on March 30, 1945, a mere six weeks before the end of the war. Once again, like the V-2, the V-1 had no significant impact on the outcome of the war. The effect that it had was mostly psychological, and even then it wasn't around long enough to cause any significant change. If the V-1 had been around during the Battle of Britain, when the British Isles were being bombed and harassed from the air incessantly, it might have had a greater impact. But like the V-2, it was too little too late. That being said, the V-1 was still an engineering marvel, and it truly was the first actual cruise missile. It's not a stretch to argue that today's modern cruise missiles are all distant descendants of the V-1. 
I also want to briefly mention that there was a V3. It took the form of a massive rocket-powered cannon, which was designed to hurl shells 165 kilometers or 102 miles. Now, this would assuredly have been an impressive feat had the V3 ever actually been operational. But the truly terrifying aspect of this weapon was that it was supposed to fire 600 shells per hour. The idea was to build it in a subterranean bunker in the Pas de Calais, where it would be able to raise London from a distance. The shells would be propelled by solid rocket boosters arranged at angles down the cannon's barrel, where they would each push on the shell in turn as it passed. Luckily, the engineering challenges the project faced proved too great, given the time and resource restraints exerted on the Germans as the war ground to a close. This, combined with extensive testing issues, meant the V-3 never lived up to its designer's dreams. The V-series of superweapons always strikes me as an odd bunch. They were all three so different, but yet so similar in so many ways. They all had the shared goal of launching large destructive packages over great distances, usually with London and the British Isles as their primary target. But each one went about doing so in radically different ways, with the V-1 and V-2 paving the way for future weapon systems while they were at it. For weapons which had so little impact on the war they were actually meant to fight, it astounds me how much they would factor into the future of warfare. And as we'll see coming up, spaceflight, in the systems that later spawned from them. Thanks for listening to this first ancillary. I hope you all enjoyed learning some more about a topic that isn't directly space-related, but still overlaps with the main story. If there are any other topics you'd like to see an ancillary on, let me know on the Twitter account, and I'll see if I can get around to doing a few of them. In the next episode, we're going to dive into the opening phases of the Cold War, and examine the state of the world as the United States and Soviet Union made preparations for what would eventually evolve into the space race. Until we speak again, this is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.